Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have on the podcast Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. Dr. B, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm glad to be with you. Yes, ma'am. And you are coming to us from the Seattle area, is that right? Yeah, Seattle, Washington. I live in Seattle, Washington now. Ten years I've been living here in Seattle, moved here from Chicago, Mm -hmm. Illinois, and now I am a Seattleite. Okay, so Chicago, and then you went to uh, Fuller in L.A. area. And then did you go to Seattle from L.A., or how did that work? Where where does the, the, the trip? Yeah. Let me tell you the convoluted story of how I am seeing the whole country slowly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a Jersey girl by birth. I went to Rutgers yes, University, ma'am. State University there, graduated with a degree in speech pathology, worked as a speech pathologist in the public school system for about three or four years, felt a call to ministry and uh, got a scholarship to go to Fuller Theological Seminary. And so I packed up everything that I owned that all fit inside my Mustang, (laughs) two-door Mustang Ford, Ford Mustang. And my girlfriend and I drove cross country from New Jersey to Pasadena, California, where I knew no one Mm. at all. My mother thought that I had gone off into the deep blue sea. She could not imagine where her daughter was going to, but that's how I got to Fuller. I finished my master's of divinity degree there and met my husband there who, um, later sensed that he was being called to finish his PhD in psychology. And that took us to Chicago, Mm -hmm. Illinois, because he did his PhD at Northwestern University. And I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Chicago and uh, lived there, thought that that was going to be my final resting place. I love Chicago. I enjoyed very much my 20 years being there. Uh, But something happened and God called both of us to Seattle, me to be a professor at Seattle Pacific University. And my husband is now the president of a graduate school here in Seattle called the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. They were a sponsor on the podcast uh, a while ago. So we got nothing but love for them. Okay, we got a lot of questions here. Okay, so Jersey, uh, I, I was born in Philadelphia, West Philadelphia to be exact, where I was born and raised. And uh, Jersey, do you? My husband was born in West Philadelphia, born and raised Cobb Creek Park okay. area. All right, so... I was born in Phoenixville. So Phil... That's where I was actually born. And got it. So Philly guy meets Jersey girl all the way in California. Okay, what is his? Fo- Does he have a football team that he is loyal to? Right now, he's still a Bears okay. fan. I'm Chicago you, Chicago got all into okay. our Okay, so when you... <laughs> but, but, but the Eagles probably are okay. real close, so I'm not going to pull back on the okay. Eagles either. Chicago, were you White Sox people or Cubs people? Interesting. Um, I was the Cubs. I'm not sure if my husband claimed one or the other because he was more into the football thing than either of the two teams. But I have friends who are Cubbies for life. And so I probably became a Cubs fan just because I'm so close to them. I respect that. Now, when you were in Chicago, I assume that's when you met Austin Channing Brown, right? Is that the Chicago time? Exactly. Okay. Let me tell you a story. I think Austin came on the podcast in 2014. She had I think she wrote a blog for Christina Cleveland or somehow Christina Cleveland promoted it. Christina had been on uh, the podcast and I read it. I thought, oh, this, this person is a smart young, young, young person knows what's going on. I say young person cause she's probably like a year younger than me. And so I had her on the podcast in 2014 and in 
doing the podcast, I guess it's been seven years now, it'll be seven years in the fall. She is the person who, unlike anyone else, who the first time she's ever on a podcast was on my podcast is what she says. And the, the way that her platform, her reach has grown has been unlike any other person I've had on the podcast in terms of, you know, very beginning and then just seeing this, this growth that she's had. And so you've been there for the whole ride too, uh, in a way that's far more substantial than just someone who had a couple conversations with her. When you met her, did you see the kind of, uh, voice that she would have that would make such a difference in so many people's lives? I would say yes and no. When uh, when I met Austin, she was a freshman at North Park University and um, 19 years old. And um, I hired her to work with me in my small little office at North Park. I was just beginning my national kind of um, ministry around reconciliation and, and needed an administrative assistant to help me kind of hold all the pieces together. But uh the person who recommended her to me said this, and I quote, I know that you would not normally hire a freshman to work with you in such an important capacity, but this young woman is unlike any freshman you will ever meet. End wow. of quote. And uh, that proved to be true. So even though I did not see all that God has done in her life uh, in the way that it has materialized, I do, I can testify that she is um, a unique human being and she was indeed unlike any freshman I wow. had ever met. Wow, that's pretty amazing. That's wonderful. Well, I would just like to say, as someone who's learned from Austin a great deal, thank you for the mentoring that you have done for her and the friendship you have, because it's, uh, you know, it's it's been good for the rest of the world. So much thanks to that. Also, I've got another uh, guest on the podcast recently who told me, that you are going to be, and I quote, the best preacher I've had on the podcast. And this person himself was a preacher. So my question for you is, it, it was Rich Velotis, by the way. I don't want to just like leave that hanging out in the air. So Rich said that. I don't know if I can say that on the air. I did, though, so we're just going to go with it. Nevertheless, when did you sense your calling to preach? Because speech pathology is obviously your undergrad. What happened along the way that you felt that calling to preach? Yeah, I became a Christian when I was 19 years old at, at Rutgers University, but I grew up in the Black Pentecostal Church, and I give God all praise for having grown up in a faith community that believed in the power and the presence of God, that the, that the story of the day of Pentecost is not a myth for the people that raised me in the faith. They believed that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came, and Peter preached his very first sermon uh, be in response to what God was doing, and uh, and God is able to bring people together as, as happened on the day of Pentecost that come from every tribe and every nation who hear the word of God in a relevant way in their own tongue. So it was in that small little Pentecostal church and the people who discipled me when I was at Rutgers um, who noticed that when I would give my testimony, that there was more to it than that for me, that there is there was a gift there that needed to be polished. And so they began giving me small opportunities to preach in church, uh, to open testimony service or to speak for a youth service or something like that, maybe just 10 minutes or 20 minutes, but they were in their own way nurturing what they saw as a diamond mm -hmm. in the rough, a gift that was on the inside that was more than just my gift at speech pathology, which 
is probably how I leaned toward that Hmm. major. I um, did not know at that time I was called to preach, but that's what I want to say to people about gifting. It's not enough for you to think you have a gift. It's the people of God, the community of faith who recognize the gift and they confirm, oh, you're called to this. So uh, it was the people of God who saw the gift of God, who nurtured it in me. And at some point uh, I began to see it as a call that led me to seminary so that I would do the work of being proficient at what I was gifted. Oh, come on at. I, you started to preach when you were talking to Acts too. Like it, you, I, I know like I, I felt as like, oh, she's about to get after this. I, I completely agree. The communal discernment part to the calling. It's, it's my experience as well. The there's a little country church. I, I went to school in West Texas and there's a little country church in a rural town. And I started preaching there when I was 19, my first Sunday there, the matriarch of the church, the lady who wrote my check, which was $50 by the way, it was a big deal for me as a 19-year-old. Uh, she handed me my first check, and she said to me, Luke, you can go as far as you want in this. And that was my call to ministry. My, my youngest daughter has the same name as that matriarch of the faith. So it, uh, it it's definitely very meaningful to have the community calling you, because it's just to have, hey, I like to preach, that's one thing, but for the community to say it, that's something different. So when so you're giving your testimony, it goes a little longer, you're getting these early talks, you're, you're freshman, sophomore at Rutgers, is that right, 1920? That's right. <laughs> yep, I was a freshman at Rutgers and I became a Christian okay. my sophomore year. So that's when I became a real Christian. I was going to church before then because I grew up in a church going family. But by sophomore year, I decided I really needed Jesus <laughs> and more than church attendance. And, and I got serious yes, about yes, it. Ma'am. So was there a, a gap from speech pathology at Rutgers finishing it up and then getting out to uh, California at Fuller? Yeah. So let me tell you what happened, because this is this is kind of fun, actually, because I think in sharing this testimony, it it helps, I think, for other people to hear how does the evolution of a person happen? So uh, here's what happened for me. Basically, I began recognizing that I had to call to preach, but I had no role models of a person for whom their entire life was preaching. I saw Billy Graham on TV and I knew that that was a person who did this kind of thing, you know, in a big stadium. But most of the people I knew were pastors of a local church. Right. And and maybe a missionary. And other than that, they were bivocational. Mm -hmm. So I literally thought, okay, I'll preach when I'm invited to preach and I'll have a job i.e. I'm a speech pathologist and I'll preach whenever God opens the door, right? Uh, What happened, literally what happened was I uh, had a couple of experiences and this is how God, I think, will will guide us toward our calling and our our vocation. uh, I was a speech pathologist. There were two children who I was spending some specific time with because they were really struggling. One young man was white, a little boy, and the other little boy happened to be black. The, The young little white boy, I remember one day I was working with him in speech pathology and they would come into my little office and we'd work one on one or whatever the speech or language problem was that we were working on. And this little boy, his first name was Don, and this was many years ago, but he talked about wanting to kill himself. This little white boy, little blonde hair, cute little thing, talked about wanting to kill himself. And, and I, it touched me at a level that was hard for me to describe, but it's, it made me wonder, what am I doing here as I'm helping this little boy work on his L's or his R's or whatever it is we're working on, and he doesn't want to live. 
the other little boy, his first name was Stacy. And I remember the day that I was doing a language uh, acquisition test to see how well his language was developing. And the, the test basically had pictures that he could choose from on his side of a flip chart. And on the other side of the chart, I could see the word that I'm testing to see mm -hmm. if he understands the concept. When I flip the picture, he has four different types of food and I have one word on my side and it's wiener. He sees four different types of food and he points to the wrong one. And I don't know what made me do it this day, but all of a sudden I instantly said hot dog and he immediately put, pointed to the right picture. And I thought to myself, oh my God, how many young black kids are being misdiagnosed as having a learning disability when they actually understand the concept, but big shots like the learning disability specialists and the speech pathologists and the sociologists and the psychologists and all these other people gather with their parents and say, well, the tests say this about your child and what parent is going to disagree with us? So that was the beginning of me deciding I like speech pathology a lot, but there's something in people's lives even at this young age for these little kids that we're not addressing. And so Keep can going. I tell you one more Keep thing? Going. All right. Here's the last piece of the puzzle. There were only two African-American speech pathologists in the entire school district, me and a young man named Bobby and Bobby and his wife, Sharon had a baby and uh, the baby went full term nine months old. And this is very, very, very difficult for me to say. In the birthing process, the baby uh, got into distress. They tried to hurry and do a C-section. And unfortunately, the baby swallowed amniotic fluid. So a full-term a full -term baby boy choked. And they um, had the nursery and everything ready. And their little boy did not survive, their baby boy. I went over to their house to do nothing Christian other than to be a presence. I wasn't trying to do anything in any way to be pastoral other than I wanted to love yeah. my friends. I went to their house and Sharon asked me to tell her about Christ, how I became a Christian. And that night in their apartment, she became a Christian. I walked away from the two of them as they were holding each other. And I looked out the window and I said out loud, I love this. And I realized that ministry is not something we do on the side. I realized that ministry is this deep sense that I would do this for the rest of my life. I had been offered a scholarship to go to seminary. I turned it down because I didn't think that I wanted to be a pastor. So I said, nah, I'll just keep being a speech pathologist. But that night changed my life. And I decided that I would pursue the door that was open to me to go to seminary. And that was because I understood that this wasn't a part-time yeah. gig. This was a full-blown calling and I needed to give it everything I had. That's a heartbreaking story. Uh, that's powerful though. Uh, wow. So you receive this scholarship. You move all the way across the country in your Ford Mustang with your girlfriend, everything you own packed up in this two-door Mustang. You get to Fuller and you have a homiletics class. And you feel pretty good about the delivery. You tell this great, the, the book is entitled Becoming Brave. And so in Becoming Brave, you tell the story about how you see this woman who uh, appears to you to be a, a sex worker and you feel called to preach a sermon about that. 
and you finished the sermon and was every other classmate a male in that room, right? And so every male classmate stands up, gives you a round of applause and the, the teacher gives you two grades, one for your like delivery and then one for your exegesis. Delivery got an A plus or an A and then your exegesis got a C. And all of a sudden you have this crisis of being a Pentecostal who's now preaching in an e- evangelical, fair to say, Fuller? Yeah, an e- evangelical seminary. Yes, absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about that tension of coming from a Pentecostal world and moving into more of an evangelical uh, you know, theological environment. Yeah, you know, uh, I just had a fascinating conversation recently with Dr. Willie Jennings, mm. who also went to Fuller Seminary, and we talked about what we did not know how to language then, but this is part of the problem with uh, the education system. It comes through a lens that is dominated by a white uh, majority not narrative, meaning uh, I had come from a church background that said, yes, you want to be biblically informed, but it is more important that you have a word from God, that this is not about your intellectual prowess, but this is about the anointing of God that breaks the yoke. So what we want you to do is give your life wholeheartedly to God and that you want to get a word from God that you believe is for the people of God so that God can transform people because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. So that was the way I was nurtured. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm also grateful for the theology that I learned to go with that. But what was beginning to happen was that slowly but surely, the message in seminary was that the only way to do something well or right was to come as proximate to white dominant culture as possible. The more you could replicate that, that's what got you an A. And that, my brother, is problematic because it basically suggests that the more I could be palatable and receptive and affirmed by white dominant culture, that was the measure of success. And I now know that that is not the only measure of success. And there was not this dialogue between the cultures of the people who came from other countries who had something to offer, but oftentimes we couldn't bring it because the, the big shot Uh, theologians who wrote the books, mostly who were white male and European, told us what we should think. And it never quite was relevant to the people we sought to serve. Uh, Luke, I I can remember the time I was sitting on the front porch with a dear, dear brother from, from Kenya. Dr. Jones Kalili had come to study uh, at Fuller and I was sitting on the front porch with him and he said, we were looking at scripture together. And this dear man said to me, he said, you know, the scripture here says that David has never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. And then he said, I don't know who David is talking about because I have. How rich a dialogue we could have had in seminary if a person from East Africa who had seen suffering close up could have brought that perspective into the classroom and been affirmed for it, as opposed to being given C's for the things that did not quite match with the rigor of professors who had come through a particular lens. So I don't think it was malicious at all, but I do think it Mm. is myopic. Okay, I see why Rich said you're the best preacher who's been on the podcast. I'm already convinced. Okay, uh, you're getting my vote for the best preacher in the podcast. My experience in seminary, not the same, 
I came from a you know, to, to churches of Christ who, you know, our experience with the Holy Spirit is more like the Holy Spirit is like the weird uncle. Like he's part of the family, but, you know, we, we don't want to be around him too much, especially our kids around him too much. But I, I, I go to seminary, and a good sermon for me is I figure out the one right interpretation of the text, and then I apply that one right interpretation of the text to my audience. As I've gotten away from that being the only way to understand preaching, it's more of I try to hear what the Word of God, as in Jesus, is saying to us today through the text. And so it's far more uh, comfortable for letting the Spirit to lead where it goes. And I hear that as stepping away from ver- like a very rigid interpretation of Scripture. You hear the same thing. I, I feel like we're-, we're talking about a similar thing, but you're referring to this as a— um, uh, I forget the exact phraseology used, but about a, a white interpretation or European interpretation— Help me see, as someone who obviously is white and European, the education of most of those people I'm reading, I, I guess, is in line with a white European educational experience. And so, is that? Yeah, just name name any of the people that you were given to read books that were people of color. Name them. Mm. You see that? Just the fact that right. Name the women. Name the books by women in your education that you got mm. to read. Yeah. You see. Case yes, in point, case in point. And, and I didn't get to have people from Latino perspective or people from, right? And, and if I did pursue it on my own, then that was told to me to be, that's liberation theology. Why couldn't it just be that's theology? Spot on. Because um, you said Latino. Yes, or that's, that's, or that's feminist theology. Why can't that just be theology? And so we get shaped by a white male patriarchal dominant culture perspective. And only that is sanctioned as mm-hmm. theology. It's almost like music. You know, classical music has to be a certain way. And if somebody plays something else, well, that's not that's not classical music. Well, why not? Mm. So it's almost like somebody's calling the shots and somebody's telling us what it is and only that gets affirmed. And if you want to pass, then you have to do it my way or we'll fail you. And that is the message that every person of color, every woman, any person trying to ask global, globally significant uh, questions that, re- that re- respond to the needs of their community and their world, we have to do that work on our own on the side because the education that we're getting doesn't allow us to do it. It doesn't equip us to do it. And in my mind, that's problematic. You're, you're spot on. I was going to say, as you're talking about what Latino voices, and I was going to say, oh, uh, Gonzalez. And then your response was, well, that's liberation theology, which is exactly how that was couched to me. So you're obviously spot on. And what happens is we lose the divinity of God, the image of God that's in all people. And what happens is we mute that until it just looks like one one sliver of the image of God that's reflected in the white European male experience. So um, yeah, you're spot on. And that's bugging me. And that's starting to bug me. So that's bugging me. So when people say, how, like becoming brave, what do you mean by becoming brave? I think that by temperament, I really am nice. I'm not a mean spirited person and I love God and I love God's people. So I've tried so hard to be nice 
in a way, not, not, not in any way a lack of fire, because I, I can't be anything but this kind of personality. It's who I am. But I did deeply respect the audiences that I was speaking to and tried real hard not to call it what I just called it right now. It we've got, but I don't think that's tipping around it or being careful with it is getting the results that we all need right now. I think we the house is on fire. And right now we need to act as if this is urgent and we don't have time to tiptoe mm-hmm. around the truth. And so what we just said right now, that's the truth. Our education system is geared toward continuing to tell a narrative that only comes from a dominant culture point of view. And that will not get us the breath of the beauty of God, because that's what the day of Pentecost did. Every person heard the word of God in their own mother tongue. And that mother tongue allowed God's word to be relevant in all these different multicultural, multilingual Mm -hmm. families. And that's what gets missing when all we're trained to do is talk about it through a white European patriarchal Mm. lens. Yes, you're spot on there. And what we're doing isn't getting us the solutions that we need. It's not getting us the answers. You talk about in the book, the the problem of whiteness. And what happens is it often divides. It divides the the people that we can listen to and not listen to. And I've heard the phrase, whiteness is a social construct. For years, I probably use it myself. I've had dialogues about it. And it's never clicked until last week. And you, you mentioned talking with uh, an African friend from Kenya. I, last week, I was talking with a friend of mine, uh, Ramjan, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. We were part of the same church. And he's from uh, Rwanda. And uh, he was he's exiled of Rwanda, born in the Congo on the border, um, came back after the genocide. And he explained to me a facet of the Rwandan genocide that I never knew about. And his take on it, as someone who is Rwandan, is that the idea of Hutu and Tutsi was always there, but it was something that was not set in stone. Like if you were Hutu, uh, it's because you were a farmer. If you're Tutsi, it's because you had cattle. And you could vacillate back and forth depending on you know the lifestyle that you're in. He said when the French and the Belgium, if I'm getting that correctly, when they came in as... Am I doing good? Yes, okay. When they came in, yes, you are. they established based on the appearance, the nose, the height... Hutu and Tutsi, and they created this division between tribes of people who had the same stories, the same songs, the same culture, the same DNA, and it 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 created a division which didn't exist until then. And for the first time, I got oh, that's what a social construct is. And obviously, that social construct led in an awful, heartbreaking, terrible thing that took place. But behind the scenes. It was white Europeans who were pushing this. Absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And and so recently um, I did an interview on, on National Public Radio and I'm honored because I listened to NPR like I'm a geek about it, right? And so the fact mm-hmm. that I got interviewed on it and, and the woman interviewing me- You're soon going to listen to this podcast like that too, I'm a, right? Like that's what's- <laughs> I'm going to yeah, be so geek. That's what's going to happen. And what, what I, I was asked was, so what concretely- needs do we need to do and that word concretely mm-hmm. has kept ringing in my head and and I want to get real precise about what needs to happen and I think the first thing that needs to happen is like you're just talking about the genocide in Rwanda and how it actually began I believe that anybody listening to your podcast the first step is to tell the truth 
Tell the truth about what actually really happened. What I have heard about Germany after the Holocaust is that there were memorials all around uh, Germany that told the truth about the horror that happened to people's lives because we will keep making believe that what happened in our country actually really didn't happen. It was kind of bad, but no, not really. So the lynching museum in, in Birmingham, Alabama, right, that basically says, look at the number of people who, women and children who were literally killed, lynched. And let me tell you what I learned. I learned that you had to be a Christian to get into the Ku Ku Klux Klan. Not, Not that you happened to be a Christian and were in the Ku Klux Klan. No, the truth, you had to be a Christian to get into the Ku Klux Klan. Now that's the truth. And if we don't call a thing a thing, we're going to keep putting bows on it and putting crosses on top of it and making it sound Christian. And it's just not. The Confederate flag was not a symbol of patriotism. It was a symbol of fear around a divisive country. And we need to say that because if we don't, we're going to keep repeating it in one form or the other. And that's my greatest concern. We don't heal it. We don't fix it. And we seem not to believe that the truth will make us free because we keep doing something to make it sound different than it actually was. So when people yeah. say that they're mad because the protesters are looting and they're, they're, they're violent, well, no, the truth is Dr. King didn't loot and Dr. King didn't fight. They were nonviolent, those people, and they got hosed and beat to the ground. So it's not true that what you're afraid of is just protesters. No, you just don't want people to speak out like this about justice. And Dr. King would be an example of a person who did no violence and he still was demonized. True? True. You mentioned in Germany, there are are physical representations of the evil that took place. In Africa, there was a truth and reconciliation uh, work which brought this to the front. And in in Rwanda, they have 100 days in, I think it starts in May, uh, represent the 100 days of the genocide. Every year they they commemorate that. Uh, Forgive me for forgetting the terminology. In in America, we we didn't have anything like the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. We didn't have something that says, hey, this took place. These were evils that, that that happened. And it seems when there's no uh, opportunity to confess, there is no opportunity for catharsis. I agree wholeheartedly. And so that I think is our work. If you ask me concretely, Dr. Brenda, what should we do? I think we should begin from the church to use the rituals of the church, i.e. confession, communion, lament, to literally talk about what has died and the ways in which the church has been complicit in helping that to take place around us. If anybody else wants to read another book, I'm glad you're promoting the one I've written. I'm grateful for it. And it is probably the best thing I've ever done. But The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby is well worth the reading because it takes a slow march from through history. And it shows that this is not a new thing for the church, the white dominant culture church. This type of evil and racial injustice can't survive without the church giving it a theology to support it. 
And that's yeah. the truth. And that was true in South Africa. When I was in South Africa and understood the apartheid situation, I went to a place called Stalinbosch University and they took us into the school of theology. And they said, shh, this is the apartheid room. This is the room where theologians gathered and used the, t- the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament as a theological rooting for what then became a political process of separating people and keeping them apart from each other. And we all know the rest of the story. Wow. What do you think that would tangibly look like in a white church of confessing and lamenting and what the sacraments of the body and the, the blood would do for for some sort of, I don't want to say uh, like ritual in the empty sense, but ritual in the, the, the full meaningful sense of it. Yeah, I think that it's going to mean letting go of control because when one is taught from the time you are a child that you are the person who knows better than everybody else what should be done, you've been socialized to believe that you should lead, it's hard then to give up that belief that you are dominant, that you are smarter, and that you are the one who should lead the process, right? And so after Promise Keepers, I'll use an example, many, many, many dear white brothers, and I say that dearly because I believe that people were sincere, would then come to people of color, usually African-Americans, and want to confess, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and then supposedly you got to wash somebody's feet and tell them how sorry you were for what happened, but that's individual repentance. We don't need that. What we need is systemic recti- repairing of what's causing people's children to be slaughtered in the streets. And that's going to require submission, That's going to require saying, I don't know what to do. And I have not been trained or reared in a world that has given me the tools to know what to do. So I will submit myself to the leadership of people of color, indigenous people around environmental justice. I will sit at your feet. Please teach us what we should do. And we will use whatever influence we have to help support what you guide us forward into. Now I think there needs to be a turning of the tables and the teacher needs to become the learner and the leader needs to become the follower because that sense of always thinking that white dominant culture knows the answers, that's not true. And I've come to believe that that's just not true. And we've got to now say there are certain things that everybody gets to bring to the party. And I'm not saying that white dominant culture does not have something to offer. But I am saying that we're living in such a, a, a strategic time in history that it's time for the Mordecais of the world who know that their lives are in danger. We are the ones who have to now come outside the palaces of white dominant culture and say, you must come out of your enclaves that keep you pro- protected from the reality of what's destroying people's lives. And you must now hear us call you to take the risk of speaking truth to power about what's really happening to people out here. And you Mm -hmm. have to get better informed in order to do that. That's what I think I'm trying to call people to. That type of bravery, that type of, of, of solidarity that realizes that I can't stay isolated in the palaces that I've created for myself. Instead, I've got to come out of this place and I know that I'm going to catch flack for it, but you've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I love how in the book, obviously Esther is kind of the, the framing story for everything you're doing. Uh, people who read the book will, will get that. Uh, one of the things you say in the book is uh, we love diversity, but justice is really the, the conversation we need to have. Diversity is we're going to have representation. We're going to have uh, black people on stage. We're going to have black people in positions. But, but justice is about making things just and right. And so your, your suggestion, your, your call to us is don't think that the white voice is always the right voice and submit and give, give voice to other perspectives. Um, one of the things you also say in the book, which I feel like here's part of the tension is, is as people of color, there's often a weight that you carry of being black and white spaces. And uh, I've heard that from you. Austin has talked about this. I, I've had conversations with prisoners who've expressed the same thing of, it, it's hard to be a person of color, to be a, a black man, a black woman in a white space, because there is always the, hey, uh, I, I saw something bad happen to a black person. Let me apologize to you for you know being a white person. Like that happens uh, a lot. That happens a lot. So the tension is we want just, we don't want to think that it's just white voices that need to be heard. We want to level the playing field so that every voice is heard. But then it does require us to go to the minority voice in a predominantly white room and say, hey, we want you to teach us. And all of a sudden there is a greater pressure that's put on them. If it's not couched in, we, we're going to do our education. We're going to learn our own. We want your participation, but we don't want you to carry this. Help me kind of flush that out of the tension. Yeah. Of, I don't want you to have to fix this, but I want you to, I, we need you. We need you to yeah. help be a part of this. Yeah. Here's what I would say. There are people who are not the minority voice in a room, right? So to go to that one person that you happen to know and ask them to become your teacher, no, do your work. There are internet, there are podcasts, there are all kinds of places and leaders and John Lewis just died. I mean, listen, we've got places that if you really want to know the answer, you can start to do your work and not just come to somebody and say, hey, tell me what to do. No, the kind of submission I'm talking about is not to an individual to ask that one person to help you. It's literally to say that there are people who have an expertise and race racial justice that white dominant culture as a, as a whole does not have in the same way. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? The difference is you're asking people who this is their specific calling. It's not just I'm a, a person of color, but I am a person of color who's been called to speak to this, right? Yes and no. Yes, for sure. And people who have have platforms where they're writing books. But but before we say, hey, Dr. Brenda, tell me what I should do. I would say before you ask me to do your heavy lifting, do your work. You do the work of finding places that you could say, I don't know. And if you then say, I've been doing our, we've been doing our work. We have begun, be, be, we're beginning to get more educated. We have taken advantage of what Brian Stevenson has given for us in the, the, the Legacy Museum. We are going to these places. We are taking our churches there. We are beginning to engage in the bigger narrative around us. We are going to detention centers and we are seeing what's actually happening to these children. Then ask me a question. You see, then, or then you're saying, I'm not just depending on you to somehow rescue me. But then let me say one more thing, Luke, that's really important. All right, here we go. Are you saying everything else hasn't been important? Because I feel everything like you're saying a lot of very... Okay. Super important. But here's, okay. here's, here's something that just happened recently. And it probably illustrates what I'm talking about when I talk about submission. 
I will not name the name of this group. Amen. Cause I love Jesus too much and I love people too much. However, <laughs> I was Uh-oh. recently asked, um, I recently did a podcast similar to this for a very large, um, white evangelical network, leadership network. I won't talk about it any further. And I said, I don't like that you just compared us. Like this is this is a different. This is a that's good. That's right, podcast. Luke. You're so come different. On. You're so come on, different. Come on. Okay, carry <laughs> on. You're on the podcast. This happened to be a podcast. That's the only similarity. Everything else now is different. Okay. Thank and you. this this white evangelical network said that they wanted to grapple with um, white supremacy and racial justice. Great. So I'm invited to come on to this podcast and use an hour of, of my time to talk in the way that we're talking right now, supposedly that people now are really desperate, given what's going on in the world, um, to deal with the issues around them, right? Okay. I finished the podcast. They hear me say that I was devastated by the by the election in 2016 and the church's complicity in a message that was so divisive. They literally decided that they would not air that podcast because I said that. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, that's rough. And um, what that says is we we know you are the expert. We know we don't know, but we are still going to call the shots. Do you see? That's what power looks like. Power says that we don't know as much as you know about it, but we're still going to tell you what to do. That's the thing that we're stopping. That's what I mean by not doing it on white dominant cultures terms. So now you tell me if I was a doctor, you tell me that you were terminally ill And you have come to me because you know that I'm a doctor and you believe that I can help you get well. And then the doctor tells you what it would take for you to get well. And then you decide, you know what, doc, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to do that. Well, then go away. (laughs) Stop stop saying that you trust your doctor when you refuse to submit to what you say the doctor has the expertise to help you do to live. That's my message to the white church. If you're desperate, then stop telling people of color what they should do. And how about this time you recognize how sick the church has become and you submit yourself to the doctors who are around you who could actually help you get well if you stop trying to be the doctor yourself. Amen. Well, I had a conversation back in 2016 uh, with a friend of mine, a person of color, who called after the election and said, I, I, I don't know how I can go to church if 83% of the people in the pews voted for this person. And I think the real travesty would be if we can't have conversations where people uh, who are Trumpers or reluctant voters of Trump or never Trumpers or people who are you know deeply um, appalled by everything that Trump is, if we can't get around the proverbial table and talk and listen and understand each other, I mean, that's heartbreaking. And uh, yeah, that, that they didn't air your podcast. That's, that's, um, but that's that's something. Yeah. That's how power works though. Power says, and I'll tell you this, a a white guy, and I've said it on almost every podcast I've done. So evidently he got into my skin, but he was white and probably somebody who heard me speak someplace and probably liked me. So he follows me on social media. And he said to me on Facebook, because I have been saying this more clearly now, he said, we liked you better when you just quoted Bible verses. Yeah. You see, that's, that's what power sounds like. Power says, 
You can say it, just say it in the way we like it. You can, you can do it, but just do it on our terms. And that's what people are now, like myself, that's what we're speaking out against. That's what Austin is saying. It's not so mm. much that we're just saying we only like black people and that we don't love other people. No, that's not true. What we're really trying to say is we've kind of had it and we're living in too urgent of a time. Too many people are dying. Too, too much injustice is happening all around us to keep massaging the egos of a white dominant culture church that continues to be complicit with supremacy and injustice and people's lives are being destroyed. That's really all that's changed about me. I've always believed this. And it's not for anybody who thinks that I just don't like when you said never Trumper, it's not a human being that I'm concerned about. It's an evil it's an evil that um, has permeated the atmosphere with the polarized, divisive um, lack of truth that we continue to justify as okay. Hmm. That's not God. That's just not God. Yeah, yeah I think the, the issue is not against who... Who someone votes for, so voting is very important, but this is not black versus white. This is not Republican versus Democrat. This is good versus evil. This is right versus wrong. And I think that is, uh, th that's accurate the way you described it as massaging egos. Because ego, uh, at least the way I'm understanding it, ego is not a healthy thing. It's an immaturity thing. And one of the great tells for, for our maturity is how easily offended we are. If, if our ego is offended every time someone says something, we don't like to hear it, and we choose to silence it, it's because we're not mature. We should be able to hear people say things that are uncomfortable to us because ultimately love brings us together and love, um, like Paul would say, it, it forgives a multitudes of sins. You could offend me and I can still love you. You can, you can love me even though I've offended you, uh, but we have to be in the room together. We have to be at the table together. We have to be listening to each other. And the fact that we just silence voices that are contradictory to what we think, that is not, that's not the people God called us to be. And then it comes down to money, in my opinion, because the real fear is that we'll lose people, that they will stop tithing. People will stop donating to our organizations. They won't support your podcast. That's how I think white dominant culture has taught me. Um, that's how power gets demonstrated. It's never said we won't listen to you, but it's really out of this notion that if we let you say something like that and, and our constituency heard that, they would they would leave our group. We can't let that happen. You know, that's our donor base. And that's why it's going to require bravery, because that is true. When Esther said to Mordecai, I can't go see the king. I have not been called in to see the king for over 30 days. I could get in trouble for this. Everybody knows what the law says. If someone goes in to see the king unannounced, there is but one law and they are to be put to death. And so I think our own fear of what we will lose, how our ministries will be impacted, who will stop supporting us. I think it's those, those kinds of fears that are, are valid fears, and they may indeed happen. 
there. Just like I got pulled off that podcast, people who take this seriously, Luke, they will too get pulled off of things. There will be people who will withdraw their financial support. And we have got to know that. And so I think Mordecai's answer to, to Esther and to all of us is that I hear you, but who knows? Perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Don't think that somehow God won't still cause the kingdom to come if you choose not to participate. But maybe this is your defining moment. Maybe this is where the church really becomes the church. Maybe this is where the people of God are really seen as the people of God. And it's going to take courage. But that's the call, I think, that we're faced with right now. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I think you're right on to it. Um, You mentioned the book. One of the fears that we have is living from a scarcity mentality, is that we we very well likely will, will lose something. You, you mentioned, obviously, um, oh, I just forgot her name, uh, the king that, that Esther, quote-unquote, replaces. Uh, Vashti, Vashti. Thank you. It's a great name. And so she, uh, you mentioned the book, um, she's described as one of the first people to stand up for women's rights. Okay, so she says no. It costs her. It costs her a lot. There are a lot of people who've, who've had these conversations. It costs them something. And if we live in the scarcity mentality that what I have is all that God has to offer, it, it makes... Saying the same make a whole lot of sense, but uh, I think the kingdom of God is calling us to something much bigger and better. And uh, yeah, I, there's a lot of stuff in the book I didn't get to that I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, but you know what? Just go read the book, people. You're going to have to go read the book. It's be- entitled "Becoming Brave." Uh, Doctor B, I feel like th- we had a lot to say here. I feel like this was really good. Mostly, you had a lot of good stuff to say. I just kind of interrupted you, but this was, this was a great podcast that, let me tell you something. I will 100% air this podcast as soon as I can next week. I'm going to post it next week. Just so you know, I'm not going to bury this one. I knew that before I even got started with you, Luke, you're a good man. Thank you for the people Mm -hmm. who listen to you and follow you. This is what it looks like to use your influence. So people think that I expect that people are going to go out there and, you know, I don't know, protest, jump in the streets, do something big. It's the big and small things that make a difference. Your podcast, these conversations, they make a difference. So thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for the time. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.